Okay, let's pray. Father, we ask that you'd be with us uh, in this uh, time this morning, that our eyes would be open to your word, our hearts would be soft, and we would be um, encouraged in our own fellowship with you, our own worship of you, and our understanding of you and your ways, and what you're doing in the world. We pray in Jesus' name, and amen. All right, so good morning. So we're on week number nine of our studying of God's covenants, and I sat down, I was working on this lesson this week, and um, kept kind of hitting my head against the wall of everything that I thought I needed to say, and um, decided to add a week to the, to the quarter. <laughs> so, so that's what I did. So I added a week to the quarter. I asked Jake permission and he said yes. As long as the, the, next, the guy teaching the next quarter was okay with that, and, and I was. <laughs> so. Yeah, Robin Peter to pay Paul, you know. So week nine, and remember that what is a covenant? And this is, Jody was talking to me this week and suggested that I clarify and add this word to the definition, and he's right. A divine covenant, okay? So we're not talking, we're talking about divine covenants in this definition, okay? The covenants that God makes with men. There are covenants that men make with men that, that don't follow this pattern because um, sovereignly administered, you, you do have this with men when a king or an emperor or a, a conqueror comes into a, a land and imposes a covenant, doesn't ask for suggestions, right? And that was very common in the ancient world. But we say, you know, marriage is a covenant um, but it's not sovereignly administered, right? And you say, well, where's the blood? Well, till death do us part. Um, headship, you know how scripture calls the husband the head of the wife? That's a covenant term. Head, head is a covenant term, right? And so, anyway, divine covenant is a bond in blood sovereignly administered, so that's what we're talking about. We're looking at all the covenants through scripture. We've seen that our first father, Adam, the covenant head of all mankind, broke God's covenant with him. Remember this, this is the covenant of works, or the covenant with Adam. You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and the day you eat of it, you will surely die. So that's the stipulation, he broke it. And immediately after Adam's rebellion, God came and announced a new and a different covenant, the covenant of grace. And that first promise of the covenant of grace, remember, is in Genesis 3.15, where God says, in the middle of cursing Satan, the serpent, I will put enmity between you, the serpent, and the woman, and between your seed, the seed of the serpent, and the woman's seed, so we're talking about offspring, he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. So a fatal wound, a wound and a fatal, but a fatal wound, right? So the seed of the woman is wounded, but the serpent's head is crushed, 
And so there would be this ongoing enmity, a hatred, an intense hostility between the offspring of the serpent and the offspring of the woman. And that seed or offspring of both has both spiritual and physical reality. It's not just mystical, spiritual, it's, it's very much physical. And so we shouldn't think of the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman as purely spiritual. These lines that, the lines of that conflict were very physical indeed. Think about it, the first casualty of the conflict between the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. Who is the first casualty? Abel. Abel. The seed of the woman was Adam and Eve's son, Abel. And the seed of the serpent was Cain. How can we say that? I mean, they were both sons of Adam and Eve. Well, here's how the New Testament talks about Cain and Abel in 1 John, and us. Little children, make sure no one deceives you. The one who practices righteousness is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who practices sin is of the devil. You see that that language, of the devil? That means descendant of, right? The son of, the seed of. That's what that language means. For the devil has sinned from the beginning, The Son of God appeared for this purpose to destroy the works of the devil. No one who is born of God, so there's the other side, practices sin because his seed abides in him, and he cannot sin because he is born of God. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil, you see, this is obviously the Apostle John has this in mind. You understand? He's not just making this stuff up. This is exactly what's in his mind. He's talking about the devil and he's talking about what the devil did from the beginning. He has, he has Genesis 3.15 in mind, right? That's where he's getting this language. Born of God, of the devil, children of God, children of devil. The children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God nor the one who does not love his brother, for this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another, not as Cain, right? Who was of the evil one. You see that? He was, he was of the evil one. He was the seed of the serpent. And slew his brother. And for what reason did he slay him? Because his deeds were evil and his brothers were righteous. The here, I mean, right from the beginning, you see this conflict take off, and it's not just some mystical, spiritual thing. There are dead bodies now because of it, or a dead body. You understand? This is very physical, very much of this world. And we see the spiritual and the physical sides of this seed of the serpent, both the spiritual and the physical sides, of the seed of the serpent literally come together in Genesis 6. This is what we talked about last week. Remember? Came about when the men began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God. And I believe there is no, there's really no 
How can I put this? It's very, very difficult to make this mean anything but supernatural, divine, quote-unquote, beings, okay? People try to do that, and that is very much the, the, the popular view of this, that the sons of God is the descendants of Seth and the daughters of men are the descendants of uh, Cain, I think is what, how it goes. That's one version of this. this. These are all just people. There's nothing, nothing weird going on here. I, I'm sorry, but you really, it, it is such an amazing stretch, exegetically, theologically, biblically, to come up with that position that I find it very difficult. Okay. So you know what I said last week about this. Sons of God saw the daughters of men were beautiful. They took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. And the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever because he also is flesh. Nevertheless, his days shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on, were on the earth in those days. And also afterward, when the sons of God came in to the daughters of men and they bore children to them, those, who were, mighty, those were the mighty men who were of old men of renown. And this word Nephilim, uh, almost certainly means giants. That's what the word means, okay? And so we see this, <clears throat> I talked about this last week. This is not an arcane, obscure sideshow in the Bible. These sons of God, these angels, came down to earth, had relations with women, and sired hybrid children. And so the seed of the serpent takes on very real and very physical form. Not just because of Cain, but because even the spiritual side is attempting to bring this about in a sense. This is not an arcane, obscure sideshow in the Bible. The whole history of God saving his people in the Old Testament is the history of this conflict, all right? Think about this. When the spies go into the land of Canaan, you remember the book of uh, Joshua? And the spies go into the land of Canaan and they come back and they said, no way, we can't do this. Why? Why do they say that? Yeah, Numbers 13. So they, that's the spies, the faithless spies, right? gave out to the sons of Israel a bad report of the land which they had spied out, saying the land through which we have gone in spying it out is a land that devours its inhabitants and all the people whom we saw in it are men of great size. There also we saw the Nephilim. The sons of Anak are part of the, of the Nephilim. And we became like grasshoppers in our own sight and so, so we were in their sight. This is not a fairy tale. This is not, you know, this is real, this is what they saw, this is what was there. Something weird is going on here. But remember, something weird is going on everywhere in the Bible, right? Yeah. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days and also afterward. I mean, I, I know, but that's what it says. That's what it says. All right. So when you read the book of Joshua, this is who the sons of Israel are fighting against in the conquest of Canaan. 
Yeah, the certain tribes, the Anakim, the sons of Anak, right, are equated with, where are we? Right, the sons of Anak are part of the Nephilim. Who, what do you think Goliath was? All right, not the normal kind of guy. Not just uh, a really tall, normal dude. You know, not, not Curtis Cook. And besides that, the physical reality of Genesis 6, 1 to 4 plays a huge role in the New Testament and in the work of Jesus Christ. But sadly, we don't have time to talk about that. So that is the background and the context of the flood. Mankind had become corrupt, not just spiritually and morally, but also physically. And God determines to wipe out mankind and start again with one man and his family. That is the account of the flood and God's subsequent covenant with Noah. God promises to preserve the created order, the created world, until all his purposes of redemption are fulfilled. Okay, that promise to send the seed of the woman to crush the serpent's head, that has to be fulfilled in time and space and in this world, so the world has to be preserved until that happens. Now, the corruption that brought about the flood, right, doesn't end with the flood. I mean, even Noah, remember what happens with Noah right after the flood? Remember, plants a vineyard, makes wine, gets drunk, lays around in his tent, naked. You remember that story? Bad stuff is still happening. But it goes deeper than that. What happens after the flood in the book of Genesis? Okay, the G- Genesis, the flood, for chapter nine, after the flood, chapter nine. What happens after chapter nine? What comes after chapter nine? Not a trick question. Chapter 10. <laughs> now what's in chapter 10? Chapter 10, you remember, is what we call the table of the nations, all right? This is, this is just the first verse. It's the whole chapter, right? These are the records of the generations of Shem, Ham, and Japheth, the sons of Noah, and sons were born to them after the flood. And then it gives you the list of all the sons who were born of them, them, their, their sons, their grandsons, and these are, these are dividing up into what we call the table of nations, all right? You, all, you understand what I'm saying? All the, the, these Gentile nations, you could say, well, not just Gentiles, but, well, they're all Gentiles at this point. All the nations are listed in chapter 10, being, you know, sprung from Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Uh, we're not going to take the time to look at that. This is the record of the descendants of Noah's sons. One of them is Nimrod. Remember Nimrod? Nimrod is the founder of Babylon and Assyria. Babylon and Assyria are the nations that much later in the history of the Old Testament come and and destroy Israel and Judah, take them off to captivity. Moses tells us who the founder of those nations are. It was Nimrod. All right. And so after the table of nations, we come to chapter 11. Now the whole earth, 
used the same language and the same words. It came about as they journeyed east that they found a plain in the land of Shinar and settled there. And they said to one another, come let us make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they used brick for stone and they used tar for mortar. And they said, come let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into the heavens, into heaven, and let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we'll be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they all have the same language. And this is what they began to do. And now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole, whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Therefore, its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. Well, maybe you've never thought about this, but this is the context for God's covenant with Abraham. All right, this is the context for God's covenant with Abraham. What's going on in Babel? Well, here at the beginning of chapter 11, we just read this, same language, they're all together, and they say, come, let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven, and let us make for ourselves a name, otherwise we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. So, think about what's going on here. They want to make a tower whose top will reach into heaven. Now, I remember growing up, you know, in Sunday school and thinking, basically being taught, these people are so stupid. Think of how stupid these people are. Because we know, of course, ancient people are stupid. Because we're modern people, and modern people are smart. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so, how silly. They think they can make a tower so high that they can like reach the moon or something, you know? Reach the space. How stupid. No, sorry, the ancient people generally are not stupid. That is a stupid modern notion. They're not trying to build a tower high enough to reach outer space or somehow get into heaven, but they are attempting to build a tower upon which heaven and earth will meet, all right? You remember early on in our series here, we talked about God and the gods, the sons of God, the divine council, all through all, all cultures, because it's true, okay? When you, when you find things that everybody, no matter when or where they live, believe, well, why? Well, because it's true, okay? The gods meet on mountaintops. <laughs> um, and so man as idolatrous, as idolaters, always want to make a place of worship where the gods are. Not the, you know, we're not talking about the true and living God, although he does have Mount Zion. So what we have here in the Tower of Babel is a man-made mountain. It's a place of worship where mankind can rekindle, after the flood, their illicit contact with the gods. This is what we would recognize today as what's called a ziggurat, all right? This is a drawing, a reconstructed drawing of the ziggurat that stood 
in the ancient world in the city of Ur. Now what's Ur? Anyone remember what Ur is? Yeah, what else is significant about it? It's where Abraham's from. This is where Abraham is from. Abraham, you know, starts out as a pagan, just like you did. Well, you know what I'm saying. <laughs> Unless you were born in a Christian home. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So this is the, this is, this is what the Tower of Babel would have been. I believe this, this ziggurat that actually was built much later is, I would say, is probably a shadow of that original one in terms of its grandeur. This temple, this was a temple to the moon god Nana uh, that was worshipped in Ur, right? It looks like a, it's a, it's a man-made mountain. You, you get up to the top and that's where the heavens and earth meet. That's where you meet with the gods. Now, by the way, these structures show up literally all over the planet. Here's one in Cambodia. All right. Here's one in Mexico. That's a Mayan temple. They're all over Central and South America, all over the place. They're still finding them in the, in the jungles that they had never found before because they're covered with trees and vines and stuff. Here's one in Indonesia, smaller scale. Of course, we have the Egyptian pyramids, right? A little different, but still, you see what they are. These are man-made mountains. Here's one in China. And actually, there are quite a few in China. Here's one in Houston, Texas. <laughs> anyone, anyone know what this is? This is the headquarters of Planned Parenthood. There's one in Las Vegas. We're not done. We're not done doing this. The point is, this is what we do. This is what mankind does, right? Mankind consistently tries to build a tower whose top will reach into heaven where we can worship our gods. So that's what's going on in, in Babel with this tower, all right? Well, what else is going on? Well, so they say, come let us build for ourselves a city and a tower whose top will reach into heaven. This is idolatrous. You understand? This is idolatrous. And let us make for ourselves a name. I'm not gonna get into this, but the language of that in Hebrew goes straight back to what the Nephilim are called. There's some descriptions of the Nephilim. This is very similar to that. It's very interesting. Then they say this, why? What's the reason for doing this? Well, if we don't, you see this? Otherwise, so if we don't do this, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Now remember, what had the Lord God commanded mankind to do? Yeah, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. That was Adam. And then again with Noah, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This is what God commanded. And so the people of Babel are saying, no, no, that's, that's what we're not gonna do, all right? Let us make for ourselves a name. Otherwise, we will be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. Well, yeah, that's what you're supposed to do. No, we won't do that. 
That's the motive. This, this, you're, you're seeing what they're thinking here. That's the one thing we will not do. We will not obey God. And so we saw what happens next, right? The Lord comes down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. Why does it say that? Why does it say the Lord came down? Well, no, that's not what I mean. Why does the Lord have to come down to see something? Doesn't he see everything? Is this just a figure of speech? Ben? No. We're going to see this more next week, literally with the covenant with, Ab- with Abraham. All right. I believe this is the son of God. You see this language in many places where there's physicality, there's location. This is not just the omniscient eye of God. This is the Lord. And we'll see this next week. Don't have time to prove this to you right now. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. And the Lord said, behold, they are one people and they all have the same language. And this is what they began to do and now nothing which they purpose to do will be impossible for them. Come, let us, there's that us again that we've seen throughout Genesis, early chapters of Genesis. I, I don't think this is God talking to himself, per se, but this is the council that we've talked about. Let us go down there and confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. So the Lord scattered them abroad from there. And they stopped building the city, and so it's called Babel. Now, this is the origin. You have, the, you have kind of the genetic origin, the descent origin of the nations in chapter 10. Now you have the scattered origin of the nations as, they, as those groups then scatter because God gives them unique languages. They can't communicate, they can't cooperate, so they scatter. Here's an interesting point that we need to see about these nations. And this helps us to understand Many things about the unfolding of God's covenant with Abraham that we're actually gonna to get to next week, all right? The unfolding of God's covenant with Abraham in the history of the world and throughout the history of the Old Testament scriptures and the New Testament. Here's a very interesting thing we have to see about these nations. And I'm gonna put this up in the ESV because there's a debate about some of the words here. Um, but I think this is right and it goes back to the texts that we use for the Old Testament from the Hebrew, and so on. I don't want to get into all that, but I think this is the right translation. Here it is, Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9. When the Most High gave to the nations their inheritance, when he divided mankind, when did that happen? Tower of Babel. This is what he's talking about. He fixed the borders of the peoples according to the number of the sons of God. Who are we talking about there? Who are the sons of God? These angels. Right? And then it says, but the Lord's portion is his people 
Jacob his allotted heritage. So there's a contrast. God gave, he divided the, the nations, he fixed the borders of the people so he sp- you know, spreads them around the earth, and then he gave them some connection with these sons of God, but the Lord reserves his people that he hasn't made yet, but he will, that's what happens next with Abraham. His portion is his people. Now watch this. Deuteronomy 4, uh, starting in 15. And this is Moses speaking to the children of Israel before they come into the land of Canaan. He says, so watch yourselves carefully, since you did not see any form on the day the Lord spoke to you at Horeb in the midst of the fire, so that you do not act corruptly and make a graven image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal that is on the earth, the likeness of any winged bird that flies in the sky, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness of any fish that is in the water below the earth. And beware not to lift up your eyes to heaven and see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the host of heaven. What does the word host mean in this context? Anybody know? When, when we say the Lord is the Lord of hosts, is he the Lord of people who have people into their house and serve them hors d'oeuvres? <laughs> the Lord of the, of the guy who seats you at the restaurant. What does the Lord of host means mean? Armies. The Lord of hosts means the Lord of armies, right? These are the armies of heaven, the host of heaven. These are the people, well, people, the, the beings that uh, we've been talking about on and off all through our, this series. These are real creatures. These are the, the, these angels, these principalities, these powers. Lift up your eyes and see the sun and the moon and the stars, all the hosts of heaven. And not just talking about the balls of gas that float in space, all right? And be drawn away and worship them and serve them, those which the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole heaven but the Lord has taken you and brought you out of the iron furnace from Egypt to be a people for his own possession as today. You see the same thing. God takes a people for himself, they're his, and he gives the nations to the gods and he gives the gods to the nations, all right? After the nations rebel against the Lord at the Tower of Babel, he says, all right, fine. I'm done with you. You will now be ruled, not by me, but by these lesser beings, these gods. I'm giving you to them, and I'm giving them to you. You deserve each other. <laughs> that's, that's what's going on. That's what Deuteronomy 32 is saying. And I think this is what this is alluding to as well. The Lord has allotted these gods to the peoples. He's given them over to them. They actually have some, under God, some kind of rule, some kind of authority, some kind of jurisdiction. We see this in the book of Daniel with uh, uh, the prince of Persia 
Do you remember that language? These are, that's a spiritual being. Michael, the archangel, all that stuff. This is not uh, myth, this is not fairy tale. These are real. And so God gives the nations over to be ruled by these lesser gods, small g, created beings. It's like what the Apostle Paul says in Romans 1 when he says God gave them over. He's done with them, right? But of course, these are not good gods. They're not benevolent, good stewards of what God has given them. They're not good. They're malevolent, they're evil. They want the worship of the nations. And they misuse the the position that they've been given by the Lord. In fact, God himself takes them to task for their failure to rule the nations justly in Psalm 82. Don't have time to talk about this a lot, but I want you to see this. This is not talking about human rulers. This is talking about what we're talking about. Look what he says. Psalm 82, God takes his stand in his own congregation. He judges in the midst of the rulers. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Vindicate the weak and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and destitute. Rescue the weak and needy. Deliver them out of the hand of the wicked. This is, this is what they should do. They do not know, nor do they understand. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are gods, and all of you are sons of the Most High. Nevertheless, you will die like men and fall like any one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for it is you who possesses all the nations. All right? This is God taking them to task. He's judging them. And the judgment, you know, if these are men, then it's not much of a judgment to say you're going to die like a man. Of course you are. But these are the gods. Jesus quotes this in the Gospels. And that's, that Jesus' use of this passage is often used as a defense of this being men and not gods, but it actually doesn't work at all. And again, we don't have time to talk about that. If you want to ask me that, you can ask me later. So, all right. What does all that have to do with God's covenant with Abraham? (laughs) Well, here's the thing. The Lord is done with the nations. Tower of Babel scatters them, says, I'm done with you. He's given commandments and stipulations to Adam who broke God's covenant. Then an expression of the covenant of grace, God had given the exact same ordinances to Noah. He repeats them and his sons, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. God told Adam and Noah to rule over the earth, to fill and subdue the earth, to turn the earth into the garden as they subdue it, they beautify it, they make it like the garden. We could even say that their task was to turn the whole earth into the kingdom of God. But Adam didn't do it. All the descendants of Noah, all the nations of Genesis 10 didn't do it. In fact, they intentionally purposed not to do it 
And that's what the building of, of the Tower of Babel is all about. It's their intentional purpose not to do what God commanded my, mankind to do. And so what does God do? The Lord God sets out to make a new nation, one not listed in the table of nations in, in Genesis 10, by the way, because it doesn't even exist yet. One not assigned to one of the sons of God, and he purposes to, to create a new nation that will be his possession. He will be their God, and they will be his people. But as we'll see, this new nation has a purpose that will ultimately result in God's blessing on all those nations. You remember this? This is one of the promises. We'll look at next week. In, through you, Abraham, what? All the nations of the earth will be blessed. What, what nations? Those nations. This is not just in a vacuum. This is exactly what he's talking about. And he will send his son, the seed of the woman, the seed of Abraham, and he will inherit what? What does the son of God inherit? The nations. Takes them back. He will reclaim the nations from their gods. And he will triumph over the gods of the nations and make the nations his. This is what God the Father says to him. Ask of me and I will surely give the nations as your inheritance. And the very ends of the earth is your possession. This happens because of Jesus coming and fulfilling the covenant of grace. We'll talk about that. All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and they shall glorify your name. So the nations will fear the name of the Lord and all the kings of the earth your glory. This is the story of the whole Bible, right? This is actually the story of the whole world. This is what's happening. There's ownership, there's inheritance, there's possession, there's victory, there's conflict. These aren't just nice little spiritual stories and myths that we think, oh, that's weird, whatever. This is actually what's happening. And here's what's going on. Remember when it says Jesus, in Colossians 1, I think it is, or 2, he disarmed the rulers and authorities. Remember this? Triumphed over them. Why? Why does the gospel now, why is the gospel free to go to the nations? Because all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus says. This is the background of all of that. God had given the nations to these gods, these sons of God, and they ruled them, and the nations suffered under them. I mean, think about what these gods ask you to do. Yeah, give me your children. Burn them. Throw the virgin in the, in the uh, mountain, right? The volcano. 
you know, slaughter. You've seen the, the mountains and mountains and mountains of skulls in Central and South America. That's what the gods of the nations are. They're bloodthirsty. And they, they rule as despots, as tyrants. But they really are ruling. And the people really were under their bondage, right? This is not just, these weren't, this, the gods of those nations are not the tooth fairy. You understand? They were real. They demanded blood. And Jesus comes and says, not anymore. Not anymore. They're mine. And I'm going to get them. All the nations of the earth will be blessed through the seed of Abraham. Well, we'll get to that next week. All of this hangs on, the, on God's covenant with Abraham. Okay? We've got to be done. So let's pray. Lord, I pray that you would make us see the Bible as it really is and be in awe of everything that you're doing in this world. Not just for us personally and privately and internally and, and just in our souls, but in this world. Conquering the nations, ruling over them, bringing them all under your feet. Lord, help us to believe that, to live out of that as if it's true, um, because you are our king. We are those nations that you've conquered, that you've freed us from those gods. Help us to live that way in faith and in boldness and in hope. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.